This recording is provided for educational and informational purposes only. As Dr. Allett is also a licensed medical practitioner, we need to make it clear that no information included in this recording is intended to constitute medical advice, consultation, recommendation, diagnosis, or treatment. If you're concerned about your health, please seek appropriate care in your area. So welcome. Last month, we went over a new tool with clients on a snapshot of anxiety. And so we want to take a few minutes to see if anybody worked with that. And then we'll talk about the new tool that, that we're offering this month. I wonder if you had a chance to play with the snapshot of anxiety. One of the participants shared that when she went through it with a client, she found it really helpful because her client was very anxious about it and she actually had to read it to him so he could respond to the different parts of the handout. He also said that he wished that he could circle only parts of the mind symptoms in section two. Yes, and this is their tool. It's not my tool, and, and ultimately it's not your tool. And maybe we need to put that more specifically in the directions to just circle what applies, but you only get one box. Because uh, one, the list just gets too long, and people get really frustrated when there's too many individual boxes uh, that don't apply to them. Um, but what I've seen is that, you know, people go from suicidal ideation to be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm depressed and I'm anxious, but I'm not suicidal. And so it's kind of a range that comes down or they're just like, yeah, I'm just moody. Maybe we'll play around with the directions a little on that part. And I think that there's, there is some value for people to be, to be like, yeah, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Or for people who, when it is really bad, to be like, you know, when you, you provide this a second time after doing an intervention, they can see, and that's really the power, I think, hopefully the power of this tool is that you do it, and then you do an intervention, and you do it again, and they can see that their symptoms have changed. Because sometimes it's hard for us to notice that our symptoms have changed because we're still uncomfortable. In the body symptoms, what's the difference between dizziness and vertigo? So dizziness is the sense of just being unsteady, where vertigo is that the world actually moves in front of your eyes. Um, and I, you know, I, we, it might be a value to put dizziness, vertigo, and visual disturbances all on one line. Mm -hmm. To me, it's a escalation as a physician. So dizziness, I kind of think of hypotension kind of things. Um, sometimes people will get vertigo with hypotension, but mostly they're just like, I, I need to sit down, like I can't stand up. And they call that dizziness, for lack of a better word. Vertigo, um, you know, sometimes people uh, are laying in bed and they're like, the world is spinning. That can happen when you've been drinking too much, but there's a whole bunch of neurological things that need to be ruled out if that shows up at all. And, and sometimes it just doesn't come up in the discussion of mental health, and, and it is a big player for the f fatigue and anxiety symptoms. One of the issues shared by a participant was that the person they were working with didn't have really good abstracting skills, and so she had to be very concrete and go through and explain step by step. Yeah, that's good feedback because that's going to happen, you know, when people are really agitated, their their abstract skills are not as useful. That's partly why talking to individual therapists is everybody's language is a little different. 
So trying to get a commonality on that language, which has always been the challenge. And I'm hoping to keep this pretty general so that almost any group can pick this up. But, you know, ultimately I might have to specialize the, the surveys. Or, you know, individual therapists might have to specialize. Another participant shares that they really appreciate the approach. And while she's been using the GAT7, she really sees its limitations when using it on its own. So she appreciates all of the other parts that you've added to sort of flesh out the analysis. In terms of the list of brain symptoms, one person suggested adding to the racing thoughts symptom uh, either mental cycling or repetitive thought patterns, which she felt was different than racing thoughts. She agrees with the other person uh, that there's a need to be clear about the terms because people can sometimes get frustrated with the screening tools when they don't really understand what is wanted from them or where it's going. Her comment on part three was that she sees the exhaustion that comes from repetitive thought patterns, the feeling of being drained. And while this might fall under the feeling better, this might be a nuance to call out specifically for the section on why people want to decrease their symptoms of anxiety. What is the difference between more than half the days and nearly every day on the GAD7 table? This is supposed to be just a, a direct pickup from SAMHSA. I've always been very frustrated by the GAD7 because feeling nervous, anxious, and on edge. You know, a, a lot of these questions seem repetitive to me. And and when I see people answer them, they, you know, they rate some of these at the same time because of language differences. And so, you know, I just wanted this who actively uses the GAD-7 so that she can have that for, you know, charting purposes and insurance purposes. There, there it is. But then, then the rest of these, um, you know, kind of build, build out a bigger frame. But yeah, I find it frustrating too. Like what, how many, how many days is several days versus more than half the days. Well, okay, several days must be like two or three, where more than half the days are three or four, I guess. A few people who were on last month um, had had a chance to use it, but weren't able to make this month's meeting and just shared that they felt that, they, well, overall, they were really liking it and that it was really helpful to start good conversations with their clients, both both existing and new, in terms of of moving conversations forward with existing clients where they may have felt a little stuck. And then also helping like as a good entry point to get to know new clients. And then the part two, um, one person shared, seemed to be especially meaningful and it helped them learn new things about old clients, like the, especially connecting um, some of the body symptoms with the mind and brain symptoms that they had been dialoguing about before using this tool. She had never known, it had never come up that um, before certain events happen, one of her client's hands start to shake a lot, like uncontrolled, like there's sort of that tremoring. That connection hadn't been made for the client, so they hadn't been bringing that information into um, her office to share with her. So that was found really helpful. And part, just to sort of fill in some of that, from the discussion uh, last month is, you know, part of why I wanted to flesh out sort of the body symptoms as well as like these, these more global symptoms that go along with uh, chronic exposure to, to adrenaline 
I mean, I've had people come into my office and I have tried really hard, you know, like they'll list these symptoms, the mind brain symptoms, but you know, when I start kind of looking at my 10 page intake form and asking them what's happening in their body, they don't report much. And, you know, as we try and have different conversations, it's true. Like sometimes, sometimes I'll be at the room and they're like, no, I don't have any body symptoms. And I can watch their carotid pulse go by and they're shaking so hard. I'm like, good to know that you don't have any body <laughs> symptoms because I'm physically really anxious sitting next to you. Uh, but other people, like, it's, it seems to be pretty true that their, their body is just not registering what's happening in their mind and brain. And, and you know, then I'm like, well, you know, like, tr we try a few things, and certainly I look for the, I do a deep dive on the nutrients, and sometimes something's there. But, but like, I can't find the physical symptoms. But if there are physical symptoms that go along with the anxiety piece, that it's, it's worth seeing if you can get these symptoms to uh, calm down in the midst of anxiety. So like the client that Natasha was talking about, you know, if somebody's hands are really shaking in this event, that could be just adrenaline. However, getting some, if the event is predictable, getting some protein aboard would be one tool to really help ground that. Or, you know, doing, th doing just physical things like, um, you know, when, when I was in medical school and get, getting really anxious, like, you know, I had a worry stone. And it was amazing how, like, reconnecting to my body really, you know, kind of helped look calm down the vagus nerve and all all of those things that we know as therapists um so you know it's just trying to nuance that out a little more because some, sometimes people won't report these symptoms to you because you're a therapist not a doctor and asking about fatigue because that's another one that comes up um so sometimes they'll talk to you about fatigue but not always what one person found in their practice is that bottom symptoms aren't always observable in the person with significant trauma. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's an important distinction to make. Like when I can see that there are body symptoms and they can't, like, I don't, I don't, I don't break that bubble. Um, but I will work with that. And, um, cause I, I know I, I remember when I got my second degree black belt, uh, a, a senior black belt come up to me and she's like, you know, that was great. I, that's the first test I've ever seen you take where you weren't shaking so hard that I thought you were going to fall down. And I'm like, I'm so glad I did not have that information two years ago <laughs> <laughs> because I would have been more anxious than I already was as they do their work on the trauma and as they get tools you know, with people with PTSD, I really find eating pr small frequent fr protein makes a big difference in their mental symptoms. Then they'll start noticing the body symptoms because they'll actually get away from it for a while and then they'll come back and they'll be like, why is my whole body vibrating? Where that was just a norm for them for a long time. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Any, any other comments? On the other hand, another connector reported that sometimes people come in and all they want to talk about are their body symptoms. Yeah, 
Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that they're coming to see a therapist, right? Like versus an acupuncturist or a naturopath or, you know, and, and isn't that interesting? And so I think there's some value in just handing it to people and sending them home as homework because I'm a big, big proponent of uh, people doing homework and not just coming in and kind of dumping or over compartmentalizing. There's a value in that I know therapeutically, but for, for me, I like homework. But I think there's also a lot of value in sitting down side by side and going through this because some people simply need to be educated. I mean, this is a little off the topic, but not much in that um, pretty early on in my practice, uh, I had a guy come in and he was depressed and anxious. And when I asked how many hours of sleep he was getting, he said he w- he got three or four hours of sleep. I was like, well, let's address that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I was like, how do you survive on three or four hours of sleep? And he's like, well, you know, I'll be at the computer and my head will start to nod and my eyes will close and I'll just go get coffee or I'll play a video game. And as I started to probe, he actually didn't understand the symptoms of exhaustion. He didn't equate that with it's time to go get sleep. And he had just programmed himself in college that when, when the, the solution to kind of nodding your head and closing your eyes is video games or coffee. And so whenever that came up, his lizard brain just did one of those two. And so he was able to maintain three hours of sleep. And, when I, and like when I educated it, I'm like, why don't we just explore when that happens that, you know, if it's between this time and this time, which was reasonable sleep times for him, he was a programmer, so he was kind of on, on a weird schedule, but that you just lay down for a little bit. And the first couple of times he did that, he slept like 12 hours because he was so exhausted. But in terms of body symptoms, I think that because we're, we are in a virtual world, and particularly the millennials as they come up, they don't interpret the physical symptoms in the same way that we have. So another example of like racing heart. So I was working with this guy and he apparently you can be a competitive race car racer virtually. So there there's now programming that actual race car racers use to train on because because if you crash, you don't die and it's cheaper and you can buy into the system. And this guy that I was working with, he did that. He monitored his heart rate. And his heart rate would get to 180 sitting down in front of a screen. And that was excitement. And so he didn't acknowledge that his heart rate would get up and race as an executive or that his body was shaking or vibrating because he had other associations with it. And in order to do that with race car racing, you, you ha- I think you have to put the subroutine in of like, we don't have to do anything about the, that information coming in. And that, that was pretty strong in him. And it may have been, all, you know, with enough digging, a trauma reaction. But I think that it's also just being wired into the virtual language people primarily. I'm not really sure what you mean by virtual language. 
So, you know, my nieces and nephews, their first language is computer. They can run an iPad more proficiently than anybody else in the house, and they don't have the English language at down proficiently as a four-year-old, right? Like we can just say at four, you just, you're not proficient at English. It may be your, you know, it may be your first spoken language, but I don't think it's their first language. I think computer is their first language. It's what they're most interested in acquiring, um, and it is what they, they gather efficiency at. And, you know, and so their, their learning, their experience of counting and naming things is all on a virtual platform. And I think, well, it's not that I think. There are some studies that are coming back that, that, that just show that the, that's a different wired brain than those of us who were raised in a more concrete world where, you know, if we hit something or we go up to our best friend in, in elementary school and we clock them because we're in kindergarten and we're mad at them and we see their face just like break out in tears and oh my god like there's a one-to-one -one reaction on that right where i watch kids who have pretty permissive access to the internet they you know at six and seven they're in doing games where you know angry birds where you stomp on 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 a thing and it goes away like you win and there is no information that that, that that would have a reverberating impact. As a martial artist, I'm trained to at least try and hit people. And, and of course, I don't want to hurt them. And occasionally you do. And there's this instant mirror neuron language that happens when you make contact with somebody. And that all that cause and effect is getting wired in the virtual world in a really different way. And so I'm pretty cautious from my experience that people who spend a lot of time in the virtual world and particularly are on the younger side and have not spent, you know, and I listened to their history and they didn't do team sports and they didn't hike and they haven't spent a lot of time in their body that I might need to actually explain to them what their body is trying to say to them on a really concrete level. Does that, does that help? That's really helpful. And another person chimed in to just say that sometimes it is difficult to communicate with them because they actually talk in a different language. And we should not exclude that discussion because you know, my hypothesis is if the power supply in the body is not strong enough to, to energize the brain and then so that the mind can emerge out of the brain, then we have mental health problems that are arising from the, the lack of power. May that be nutrients, feeding, you know, eating, sleeping, exercise, all those things that need to, the body needs to be taken care of. But, you know, the, uh, who, what's the person out of Huffington, you know, she wrote an entire book on the power of sleep because she didn't sleep for four days and fell down in her kitchen and, you know, because she didn't know that she needed to sleep. 
<laughs> I'm like, and you get a bestseller out of that? <laughs> you know, like, so, you know, there's lots of different ways that this, this can, can facilitate conversation is really um, what I'm trying to do is broaden the conversation about what, what can drive the symptoms of mental health that people are coming to therapists or, you know, it doesn't have to be therapists. It's just that we're connecting to other people and about anxiety and fatigue. And, you know, that could be a supervisor, that could be a nurse, that could be a coach, or it could be a parent, it could be all sorts of things, but keeping that language base broad. So let's move on to what's impacting anxiety. My shtick is let's eat three days of protein every three hours and see how you feel. And this is just building on that concept and just systematizing it a little. And I've done this with a number of clients over the years. And this is just making it a little prettier. (laughs) Can be used in other ways besides just three days of protein. So just to orient, so you have the three days You have what's going on so that people can write in breakfast, talk with my boss, lunch, had a fight with my teenager, you know, whatever they want to kind of scribe in and what time of day it is. And then just rating anxiety because what I find clinically is that people, there's kind of, well, there's multiple variations of it, but like either they have anxiety or they don't have anxiety. Or if they have a high level of anxiety, let's say they talk to their boss and it was a challenging conversation, they talk to their boss and then the anxiety, that that looping of anxiety stayed with them all day long. They may not actually be anxious because I'm like, do you feel safe right now when they're in the room with me? And they'll pause and they'll be like, yes. And then they'll go back to talking about their boss, which makes them anxious. So, you know, kind of helping them get a little, little more gradation in that so that they have a sense of control. Um, Dan Siegel, I think, is really smart about it. You have to tame it to name it. And then energy levels. Because some, sometimes people are anxious because they just don't have the energy to cope with what's happening. And so seeing if that is influencing it. I have had people do this exercise a number of times where, because some people need to, they're concrete learners or they need to learn through experience. And so I will have them write down when they're anxious and when they last ate. And they'll come in and they'll say, oh yeah, when I don't eat for five, six hours, I'm anxious. Good. Good to know. Like, let's create an experiment around that information. And then tracking other resiliency factors or anxiety factors. And, you know, these can be really good discussions. And then the, again, we'll have a booklet that kind of comes out with why is caffeine, for instance. If you're having panic attacks, you'd have to give up the caffeine because caffeine is just, just wires your brain to be anxious. That's why it seems more awake. And so some subtleties about that. So sometimes people are like, what's the difference between low anxiety, medium anxiety, and high anxiety? And so, you know, low anxiety is managing the anxiety with little effort, but maybe increasingly aware of it. So because this is always new information and you never quite know what's going to happen, I have a low level of anxiety 
when I come to do these uh, connectors meetings, which is, it's anxious and it's a little exciting, you know, like hard to discern. And so I just make sure I have breakfast so that it doesn't escalate into medium or high anxiety if, if the technology falls apart or all the things that can happen when you do when you do public speaking. Symptoms of anxiety that draw your symptom away that may impact your decisions is sort of the, how I define medium level of anxiety. There's probably lots of different ways to put language around this. And then high is where you're really feeling uncomfortable and your anxiety may no longer feel manageable. That's just kind of how I broke it down. But this tool is not for me. This tool is for the individual. So I left it pretty broad so that they can define it themselves. And, and there'll be a handout if you want to do that, where the patient can define those symptoms as an exercise, as a pre-exercise. But So that's kind of just a orientation. Comments on this handout from people? I'll just share that I used it as a, as a beta user. And I had this expectation that there are seven slots for each day, and I was going to do it, fill it out throughout the day. And of course, that's not how my day went. And I didn't really feel like filling it out in front of other people. And so I was um, in talking with Kristen about it afterwards. One of the things that I found really helpful was when she was like, well, this is really for you. So if it's three times or if you start out and then at the end of the day, you reflect back on it and just fill in the highs and the lows, it's really just a matter of starting a day with the intention of being more aware of your anxiety level. And so I guess I would just, you know, and that'll be um, part of what's in the, the booklet, but I think also in using this with other people, you know, helping them feel okay about not filling out every square of the grid uh, is, yep. is good to, to keep in mind. Uh, do you mind sharing how you found the handout helpful or not helpful? Yeah, I mean, I found it really helpful because even if I wasn't filling it out, I was like constantly checking in and trying to notice the highs as well as the lows. I guess also one of the, the helpful things was just having um, worked with you, Kristen, before is going into very stressful, anxiety-riddled situation. And so I, knowing about protein, I stocked up on, you know, instead of sugar or alcohol or other treats, everything that I brought with me to eat, um, because I often need to, to, we often bring food, is, was like protein based. You know, I had my protein bars, I had beef jerky, I had meat sticks, I had yogurt, Greek yogurt. I, so in thinking about it afterwards, like I think my anxiety levels probably would have been up two or three points from where I felt, even though there were some definite high points, I felt able to keep it in check because I was looking at this list in the beginning and end of the day and remembering just go for a walk for 10 minutes. It helped me in that way um, to just remember what my tools were, I guess. Yeah. One person noted that a problem they've had in, in sharing the handouts is that people take them home and then lose them on their desk or forget about them. So she's found that if she goes through it with people in her office before, it sort of creates that anchor and they're more likely to follow through with doing the homework. Another person shared that what she's found helpful is to print the handouts on colored paper so it stands out a bit more and it's easier for people to keep track of. And then it becomes a tool of attachment, right? Like, oh, this is that special piece of paper. By, by spending five minutes with somebody on it, it activates it into a different tool. 
and you know help solidify on a mental level that like oh we're going to go over this the next time and that's what part of what I do with people with the handouts that I give like so 90% of the time that they don't bring the handout back in but they may have used it and I'm like oh that's okay let and I just get it out again and I'm like let's just think through what happened that you don't have to have that one. Another comment is that screen time might be added to the anxiety accelerator list. People are so immersed in screens during the daytime that they may not even know to think about it as an anxiety accelerator unless it's pointed out to them. Another connector shared that one of the things they've found is that there are people who are constantly checking their phone. That behavior is tied with anxiety, but TV time is connected with food. So she's had to really drill down into what kind of screen it is. Yeah, because, you know, the studies are pretty clear that it, outside of work, if you spend more than two hours a day in front of a screen, may that be a smartphone or a computer or a TV or whatever, outside of work, you're going to be depressed because you're just not getting enough time connecting to yourself and others. And, and it's kind of like me asking about any other kind of addiction too early, like really pushing on, on an addiction too early. They, people get super defensive. And so I go back and forth because I totally agree with you. And for the purposes of the book, I'm kind of like, Anxiety and food, that's all, like, we're just going to build that out and, and people can use the tools in other ways, certainly. Yeah, but there's just so many things to screen. Is the structure of this, do you think it's useful, the way it's laid out? Everyone agrees, yes. And another thought shared about screen time that they found, especially with couples, is conf confusing social time with screen time. So social life is, may actually be done through texting as opposed to face-to-face. -face. Yes, and that's why one of the tools that I might roll out is, I, like, I ask people, how much time do you spend in front of other people in the day? Just, like, how many hours are you actually in the room with people? And there are people who are in, in the room with people too much, and there are people who don't get enough face-to-face -face time. Real face-to-face -face time, not... FaceTime, FaceTime. <laughs> and not sitting, sitting side by side in front of a TV or another kind of screen. Yeah. yeah. There was a question on the very top of the worksheet where it says what's going on and to note the time. Should people be noting events or conditions that are connected to lower high anxiety? Well, it's kind of like when they, when they decide to note the time of day, what's going on. If you asked me what happened yesterday, I could pull it out. But, you know, we are, like, so much happens in our days, it's kind of hard to pull it out. Um, and, it, you know, like, for instance, I, I got a cortisol, I do a four-point cortisol test with most of my patients. And I had this woman who had a pretty normal curve, and then there was this sharp peak at noon and then it dropped down. I never see that pattern. I'm like, anything happened? And she's like, no, we go on, we have a conversation. And then like a third into the appointment, she, she said, oh yeah, I had a fender bender. It wasn't a big deal, but it was enough to pump, pump a lot of cortisol out. She wasn't an anxious patient, but for an anxious patient, that, that could have sent it off. And so 
what's going on is just noting maybe had breakfast or when they had meals or when something hard came up and they can make a little note about that. That's that's just it's it's a way of like cueing in what's happening. And it may not be enough space. I had a couple of people who are like, that is not enough space. And I'm like, well, then just write one, two, three, four, five, and then flip it over on the back and write down one breakfast. And this is what I had for breakfast. Like they, it was just somebody who wanted to put a lot of details. And, and so they would just flip it over and take note on <laughs> what they wanted to remember. What I think this is helpful is, is for you to help people set up experiments. So, you know, it doesn't have to be food. That's my sort of shtick. But um, like if you were going to have them do five minutes of meditation, just quiet or, or 10 minutes of listening to songs or, or music, and they could say, you know, okay, 1230, my anxiety is, you know, a seven. And they sit down and they do a tool, an anxiety tool for 10 minutes. And so, you know, instead of 1230, it's now 1240. And they can just check that, oh, yeah, my anxiety went from a seven to a five. Like, that's actually a significant change. And now they can visually see that they have a 10-minute tool that will lower their anxiety 20% if they utilize it. And making it that concrete sometimes helps people be more active about their tools. Because, you know, the, uh, the other problem that we have is a lot of people are like, yes, I know that tool works, and they never use it. And, you know, then the, then the challenge becomes a sort of like unraveling why they don't use it. In my office, it, it's amazing how quickly they forget sort of what their return on investment is. What it comes down to is they're like, yeah, but it's not really enough of a change. And I'm like, really? 30% is not enough of a change? I mean, we can do benzodiazepines, which will be 100% change, but then you have an addiction. They're like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, like, we don't want that. And then talking about the value of wiring that in, and you have to do it, you know, 10 or 12 times before the brain is like, oh, this really helps. So, again, it's a tool to kind of help with sort of the kind of before and after and have more in-depth dialogue on, on value is how I think of using it. But you can use it any way you see fit. Okay, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.